Welcome to Stuck in Development, the podcast where two media strategy nerds dissect what's developing in the world of entertainment. I'm your host, Carl, and with me, as always, is Aton. Hello, Aton. Hey, Carl. I, I have to say, I, I know we're going to start with this topic, but after both of us watching Tar this weekend, don't you suddenly feel like you have to be very articulate and uh, talk about the famous podcasters of the world that you look, that you look up to and what might be the meaning behind the type of words that they use and the intonation and uh i don't know you know really live up to to the to, in, within the shadows of your heroes i i think you are feeling very inspired by the fact that that minute that film opens with 10 minutes of adam gopnik from the new yorker interviewing a character that we have to spend the next three hours with it's great <laughs> it is great yeah uh after last week's episode, we promised that this will not be a movie reviews podcast. We actually are going to dig into some unusual topics for us, or not our usual topics. Mm-hmm. But yeah, on our production notes, I have written Tar Corner is what's going to start us because we both saw Tar, we both really responded to Tar, and we both, at least. I think you think that everyone should see Tar so that they can also talk to us about Tar, right? <laughs> exactly, and spend <laughs> ten minute one show takes talking to us about Tar. Um, yeah, I, I can I can start us off. So Ariel and I went into it, you know, having seen the trailer, having knowing that it was some sort of uh, not psychological thriller drama, not even like we had seen some of these words thrown around. We were like. We've heard Kate Blanchett is awesome. And like you mentioned, the first three scenes, not scenes, sections, mm-hmm. parts, are like these 10-minute long uh, duologies. Is that the word? Not monologues? Duolog- duologues? I Dialogues. Know. Yeah, yeah. Sorry? Duologues? Dialogues. Dialogues. Uh, I get, really? Anyway. Yeah, it doesn't make sense when you say Perfect. that. Perfect. Yeah, dialogue. I guess, I guess that makes sense, yeah. <laughs> Of just, like, a lot of words and, of course, a little bit of exposition, but, like, really getting to know the character in a way that Ariel and I were talking at the end of the movie, like, that you rarely get to see. There is some, you know, like, catching you up to understand where it is, and they found a way to, like, make the exposition part of those first sections, but, um, yeah, this is kind of the first time that that Kate's Kate shines already in 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 the shoes of Lydia Tar, and then the third section of this one is kind of a this one shot take of her giving a class and really setting the stage for what is gonna happen to her character basically how how do you think you of course you have the the beautiful art mind of the two of us how did you feel about the way that this movie I, I was curious when I was watching it I was like I'm curious to talk about Carl, about how this movie starts and it sets up what's going to happen after. Because as I watched those three sections, I was like, this is very, it felt unique and different. But I was curious for your thoughts. Yeah. Well, beautiful art mind aside, I (laughs) honestly felt very stupid watching this movie because, I don't know, film is a very populist art. Literature is a less populist art, but another one that I engage with and far more populist than I think classical music is, especially the world that sure. Lydia Tarr revolves in. Uh, also, for the record, Tar. I don't think we said this up front, 
stars a new film from the director Todd Field, who mm-hmm. uh, has not made a film since Little Children in 2006. Uh, those of you who have seen the film Eyes Wide Shut, he plays Nick Nightingale, the piano player from that the film. But this is a film that just kind of emerged out of the ether of award system or award season as something that is just an object that can't be ignored because it is very complex and very striking. And and to your question, I was honestly shocked given what I knew about the premise, which I knew that this was vaguely a composer is caught in something with respect to cancel culture. That's mm-hmm. all I knew. That's not an unfair description of it. I was intrigued by how it deals with cancel culture because nobody was upset about it. In fact, many people were really happy with how it deals about it. And I was surprised given a lot of the talks I saw about it, it that it feels more like, you know, the, the metaphor of the frog boiling in a pot of water where it's just so slow and it's slowly ratcheting the tension mm-hmm. every time there's a conversation or every time something happens. But there's not really a big explosive moment until the climax honestly yeah i think so I'm surprised yeah and i think to your point it, it, i mean it's not a it's not an original way to tell the story but like you mentioned the story starts with her at the complete top of her career this new yorker um interview they tell you how she's managed she's directed all of the big world orchestras how she's about to finish the cycle of being able to record the ninth, all of the nine Mahler uh, symphonies with the Berlin Opera. And you're like, oh, wow, like she's incredible. Not only is she amazing musically, but she's, you know, redefined the position for women. And she has this NGO that helps with, um, you know, for uh, women that are interested in uh, conductors. And then, like you mentioned, it very slowly starts trickling down from there until... Like you mentioned, there isn't really a, this the moment, you know, the Django Unchained uh, library yeah. scene where it's like, oh, oh, now everything is about to boil. But it does a great job of like, like I truly left and without getting into spoilers, I left the movie truly not knowing if she was a good conductor or not. And if she knew music at all, like it's clear that she knows music because <laughs> she plays the piano very well and she can talk about it. But if all of this persona was completely fake and the way the story was told, I thought was quite interesting because they were like, oh, you know, maybe she did this thing that she shouldn't have done. Or, oh, maybe she got her position in the way that she shouldn't have gotten it. Or, oh, maybe actually she was involved in like pretty serious crimes or, oh, maybe. And then, you know, when I realized was she's trying to compose this piece throughout the throughout the the movie. And the more we see from her is six notes that are all based on noises that she hears. And then the only time somebody reacts to it is to change one of the notes that she wrote. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I, I was fun. I realized yeah. it was a little bit slow, which I can see a little long. But I thought Cave Blanchard was great. And I look forward to seeing yeah. it again and trying to dissect it a little bit more. I... I disagree that it that she doesn't know how to, to write music. I mean, obviously she has she is prefaced in the New Yorker thing as an EGOT. And I think Kate sells her ability to conduct and manipulate an orchestra and 
from the sec the first second you see her conducting one. I think that it's just clear that her head is elsewhere and she's clearly distracted in, in the part of light that we see. What I really like about the film is that okay, there's there's two things I there's a lot I really like about the film. <laughs> yes, honest, please, but don't limit yourself. The two things I want to dig into. One is a response to what you said, where there's this constant tension between Lydia and the mentorship that she received from Leonard Bernstein. And she's constantly shown bristling at people that hero worship in her life and hero worship her. That is something that engenders a lot of pity and loathing from her whenever that happens. But at the same time, it's very clear that she did the same to Bernstein. And based on how old this character seems to be, Bernstein died in the early 90s. She probably didn't have that close of a relationship with him. How much of that is self-mythologizing? And I, I think, to your point, it's this Gordian knot of how deep does the artifice of her personality go in who she is and what she actually loves and what she reveres. And that's all there from the opening where she's describing Bernstein's very spiritual Jewish approach to com composition mm -hmm. and conducting versus her much more clinical, quote-unquote, love-based approach, which is not really found in the text yeah. of, of her work. Yeah. And, and I think it's that, right? That I like the way you said it, which is like, yeah, I, I know I'm over-reading into things of like, oh, could it be that she didn't really know music and she just made over everything? But it is all of those subtle details. I like the way you put it, though. Trying to doubt how much is her and how much is what she built to be there. And I also really like the way in the movie, like so many of these hints, they're not hidden, but there are some of them that they don't make that much of a point about it. Like the one about how she got the Berlin job. Where yeah. her wife, just in a sentence, says like, "Hey, remember when you got here, and you asked me for guidance around how to work the politics?" And that's all all that it said. And then you're like, "Oh, well, you know, yeah. just in the same way that yeah. she got the cello player, which was like pretty. I mean, it was pretty simple in in a way. You know, it was just playing it a little bit. But um, yeah, I keep I keep going back and and thinking about." About different pieces. Uh, favorite song, The Accordion, The Apartment is for Sale. Oh, yes. Uh, okay. A wonderful original song. Is that eligible for Oscars? I guess Ariela I says that it's not original because it reminded her of the Olsen Twins' Brother for Sale. Have you heard about this song? Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> So it might not yeah, even be sorry. original. <laughs> yeah, I would love to see a lawsuit where the Olsen Twins are suing over this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and... The, the other thing, which I'll keep this brief uh, around Tar, is I, I don't want to talk about the, the ultimate ending because I think that should go unspoiled. But I do find that the ultimate ending passes a certain... It, it is clear what Todd Fields thinks of the character of Lydia Tar, Tar coming out of this film in terms of what she deserves and who she is. But what I love about this movie is it is fairly ambiguous in that you don't know where he thinks the line is. Like, it is there is a scene early on in a Juilliard classroom that, based on how it's played, I think that is supposed to be the hyperbolic limit of what cancel culture can be and how 
some younger people engage with problematic people. Mm-hmm. And that's that's shown as a line that's okay to cross, I think, throughout the film. But ultimately, there are a lot of other awful things that it's implied that people do in this film that are bad. And I love that, that this film forces you to exist in a gray area and doesn't tell you what to think, but it does tell you to think and that, that something is wrong. And I think that's why it's been so widely well-received because it's not it's not like Clint Eastwood making a cancel culture movie in which everyone gets railroaded and ev- nobody's actually should be canceled, right? Mm-hmm. And it's also not Adam McKay making this movie either. It's very subtle. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm looking forward to watching it again. Uh, that's our review for the week. I mean, I yeah, think we're... Tar, tar Corner yeah. is uh, <laughs> coming to an end. I should look at the box office real quick. It yeah. was in very limited release. It only moved to Boston and SF this weekend. Yeah, I was surprised that it was playing on AMC. I thought it was only going to be in Coolidge here. Uh, but it uh, seems Kate Blanchett, uh, Locke, to be nominated for Best Actress. It appears that she's a lock for for her. I would hope that it's a lock for screenplay as well, because I think it's a very well-directed film, but the screenplay is really what shines to me. Mm-hmm. It seems like Field will probably get a screenplay nomination and maybe a directing nomination, and given how big the field is, maybe Best Picture. But I think Kate's the one that's the lock here. Yeah, that should be fun. How did it do in the box office? It has made $555,000 so far, oh, but wow. I don't know what the budget was. <laughs> but I mean, it's had a super limited release. It has also had a wonderful per-screen average. Uh, yeah, the per-screen average is $40,000. It's ranked third right now after Everything Everywhere All at Once and Doctor Strange and then Tar. For the then, year. Oh, amazing. For the year. So... In terms of how little it's it's seen in terms of release, it is doing fantastic. Yeah, yeah. My theater was almost full, and it was in the Ours biggest. Ours was full as well. And it was in the biggest. It wasn't the IMAX, but it was the biggest screen available. But yeah, it was only one screen. Ours was ours was full. It was a smaller screen, but it was also a one thirty matinee, which I was telling you before the call. The call. Wow, I feel like I'm in work mode <laughs> right now. But before we started recording over Zoom. Uh, that it, one of the, the worst and but most amusing things about seeing movies at a matinee, especially this sort of movie, is all of the elderly theater patrons just loudly talking about what they like or don't like. <laughs> well, uh, this, this film has extended opening credits, and just I just heard this couple over next to me saying, this is so annoying, three minutes in. I'm like, well, good luck for the next three hours. Yeah. I had a bigger problem with the 25 minutes of previews that I counted in the <laughs> theater. It's insane. All right. Um, you want to transition us to... What are we doing next? I was going to... To BTS. Or actually, I can transition since I brought the topic. You have, right? you have the cool. order there, yeah. I have the order here, yeah. Cool. So after this, we're doing Kanye and Parlor if you want to do that. Um, but, okay, cool transitioning in all right so out of movie review zone as promised uh we're gonna go to the world of music for a second i guess that's a fairly decent transition from this film we'll take it but 
I'm I'm not a BTS fan. Are you a fan of BTS or any K-pop groups? I think I love. Let me put it this way: I connect with what BTS is doing. I wouldn't consider mm-hmm. him a fan. I know don't know that many songs, but I remember the first time I heard them was in this live uh, taping. I don't think I don't know if they were performing of Dynamite in the Late Show with um, Jimmy Fallon. And if you haven't seen it, watch it on YouTube. And I was like, wow, this movie and these guys are great. And to this day, I love Dynamite. I love Butter. I think it's very fun. I think they're great. And I think they're a good example of a well-managed marketing machine and placement and stuff. And literally yesterday, Dynamite, Ariel and I drove into Western Massachusetts to watch to watch mm-hmm. some leaves. And Dynamite came out, came up, and I started singing. And I told Ariel, I love this song. Two years later, this is amazing. And I remember where I watched that video for the first time. We were in Park City, the second stop in our road trip. Like that big of an impression it made. So when you ask, are you a BTS fan? It's a loaded question. I wouldn't consider them a fan. I would say I'm a... I really enjoy watching them from from afar. Or like following them. Yeah. Yeah. Are you? I watch them for much further than you. (laughs) I enjoyed everything of theirs I've heard, but I've never particularly sought it out. But that said, they are a massive success they single-handedly transformed the american appetite for k-pop and they are after being on hiatus a hiatus for a yearish they are going further on hiatus until 2025 yeah so it was announced earlier today that uh, in south korea military service is um compulsory it's a little flexible because it's, I believe, 18 months of service before you turn 28. And yes. two years ago or three years ago, they, there was a new law where it was up until you're 30 if you're a K-pop star. And apparently, Jin, who is the oldest member, turns 30 in a couple of weeks. So they're using that as a way to say, let's all do it at some point. And we, what was the official language? We might, we should get back to Bulgaria by 2025? Oh, let me let me find it. Um, yeah, I can't I can't find the English language translation here easily, but they say quote around twenty five. Okay. the The most interesting thing about this to me is I I first heard about this problem for BTS a few. Weeks ago, when it was announced that this is actually a major political battle in South Korea, because there are are permanent exemptions for athletes and performing artists, but specifically those working in classical music and traditional music, there's not a K-pop exemption. They were given a temporary, a temporary extension, but it was it's not codified into law that they could actually fully be exempt. When you say when you say traditional music, is like traditionally Korean music, like folklore yes. music? Okay, got it. I was like, what is more yeah. traditional than pop? But no, it does make that make sense. Yes. So, I'm not going to really, I don't think we should wade too much into the strategy here because we are not civil servants, much less civil servants with a duty to the state of Korea. That said, I I can't imagine how tricky it was to weigh the the Political messaging of service is compulsory. It is important as a South Korean citizen to 
serve in the military, especially with North Korea continually saber-rattling, versus the fact that this is the most important cultural export Korea has to um, meet the global economy in terms of cultural export. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder if there's going to be a last minute because they announced it today, right? So I want to see the backlash over the next couple of days. And the, the valuation of, of their parent company, Big Hit, already tanked last year as they were pumping the brakes on, on the band. I wonder where that company's going to be in 2025. I'm sure they'll be fine, but it's a big bummer for them. Yeah. They're definitely a uh, strategy beyond a markets question, as we would say in business. Exactly. That would be a great case. Um, but speaking of bombers, and this is a topic that I'm bummed to talk about, but uh, I think we should rip the bandit off. Um, so in, 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 <laughs> in the latest of our We Hate to Cover It saga, a couple of weeks ago, Elon Musk <laughs> came back to Twitter and said, I'm actually buying you and I want to go through. There is still questions if Twitter is going to take it at the price that was agreed upon, if they want to fight. But anyway, since then, um, Ye, formerly known as Kanye West, uh, got himself banned from Twitter for making some not very hidden anti-Semitic remarks. Mm -hmm. And it seems like as a reaction, he, today it was announced that he's interested. Is he interested or is he buying Parler? Like it's, 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 the, the language is that he is buying Parler. So Parler, as many of you know, or might remember, is the conservative social media site that honestly I thought was removed from all servers and couldn't find hosting, but is back. But yes, he is acquiring it. There's nothing about price anywhere. Yeah, and I was going to say, like, uh, Elon Musk has... If Elon Musk has $200 billion in worth, well, now it's probably closer to $100 billion in worth, he probably has 99 more billions than Ye. So I can't... I can't I, anyway, I don't want to talk about that. But the, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty... It's pretty scary. I mean, I don't know if yeah, I would consider him like a billionaire, but uh, these types of personas, not only specifically for their politics, but but yes, acquiring these town halls and treating them as their own quote-unquote free speech spaces mm -hmm. uh, where, you know, specifically, especially when I talk, think of Twitter, and I don't know if we, talk, we, we ever said it, out loud, but I think for you and me, Twitter with all its horrible corners and untapped potential of how much bigger it could be, still represents over the last like 10 years for us, like also our evolution of how we think about free speech and how we are exposed. Mm -hmm. Not that we agree to how we do it, but we're exposed to many different ideas, even if we're in a bubble and people have the ability to be here. And Twitter, for better or worse, has been living day in and day out with a responsibility to define what it is and at what point do they come in and do they come out in a way that they say is thoughtful from outside looking in it you can tell that they've had that they've had a challenging time with it right that they haven't made decisions willy-nilly they failed they made wrong decisions they've apologized Mm -hmm. But they've 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 done the effort, and that's what I I at least condemn them for. And when I think about 
Elon Musk taking over, it's like, okay, this is, this is a little bit crazy. I don't know if that's going to go down the line. And now, yeah, also working on one because he seems to be angry at, you know, he's a, he's a perfect example of free speech means you can say whatever you want. It doesn't mean people are going to accept you in their circles yeah, and just accept anything you have to say. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's a bummer. What do you think? It's, it's, it's a bummer. The <laughs> free speech is such an annoying dog whistle from conservatives or just generally, but specifically conservatives. And the, the grand irony here is the reason that this is even quote unquote, a free speech problem is that the, conservatives in the 1980s under Reagan put into place antitrust regulations or destroyed antitrust regulations in a way that created our modern super conglomerates of information technology that has led to a lot of political power being held inadvertently by these social media companies that, of course, Ronald Reagan didn't know social media existed. I don't even think it existed when he died, but that's it. Conservative economic policy is why we're in this position. And as the grassroots Tea Party effort comes to power and the right starts courting people whose economic self-interest is is completely flies in the face of uh, bigoted views and they start driving on, focusing on the bigoted views, all of a sudden it's a massive problem that big tech controls all of our information, right? And... The, the thing they always lie, or not lie, uh, rely on, they do lie, but <laughs> rely on, is the old FCC standards around equal time for, for broadcasting. Mm-hmm. But that's, that, that's back when TV was on a handful of spectrums. There were really only three that people used pre-UHF. And the FCC regulated who got to use those spectrums to broadcast. Now, anything can, anybody can broadcast pretty much anything anywhere. And it's proven with Parler being back that you can even find servers if you really, really look for them from a company that thinks your views are insane and ridiculous and should not be broadcast. So, yeah, the free speech thing is so annoying and so stupid. This isn't a free speech issue from a government level. And I, I don't know. I Speaking... Look at Connie's other business, business deals this year. I don't think he's going to really carry this one to the finish line, even if he does acquire it. Yeah. Speaking of uh, another strategy beyond markets question, I mean, as someone, full disclosure, who owns, like, three shares of Twitter, like 60 bucks worth of Twitter wow, shares. Big um, spender over here. I mean, I always have to be transparent with the listeners, just like I share that I own in Helios and Matheson. Like, um, oh, yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm following this closely. And Parler, par- I don't own Parler, not that it's public or anything, but yeah, bummer. I do wonder what the future holds for Twitter, even just generally beyond a Elon acquisition. It's kind of the only thing that's at scale that does exactly what it does, mm-hmm. where the purpose of Twitter has always been engaging with the public and with people you don't know, which is pretty uniquely not what Meta focuses on. TikTok's far more focused on content creation yeah i think tiktok will probably maybe absorb the audience better than anybody else but i don't know 
Yeah, I think some people sometimes talk about Reddit as having this a similar job to be done as going to your town place to the things sure. that you follow. But even the setting and the the way you get to engage with things is so different. Like I love Reddit as well, but it doesn't take over Twitter. Same. And and um, I I also have to say I'm sorry. The Twitter stock it's around fifty, so I have around one hundred and fifty bucks worth of. Oh. Yeah. And wow. Should, I, yeah. I. The SEC should come after you. I know. The theory is it should stay around 52 because that's what Elon is supposed to pay for it. So It's a little bit lower today. But I have to say, probably the worst part about this thing was, I don't know if I've said this, but I'm a big Dragon Ball Z uh, fan. I've, I've okay. never really engaged with it besides I know who Goku is. Well, Goku. And Super Saiyan. I know that. Baller. Super Saiyajin. Also, the translations in, in like Latin, Spanish, Mexican Spanish were amazing but i remember having dinner at my house it was broadcasted on like the one of the broadcast channels in mexico from eight to nine two episodes Mm -hmm. and after each episode they would say you know on the next episode and the siguiente episodio de dragon ball z and they would tell you what it was and at the end they would say don't miss it like no se lo pierda and me and my brothers like i was six four like i was six i was four we would say like we're not missing it because it's starting right now. And we love that. Every single day we would say that to the screen. And we felt so proud. But anyway, one of the most memed uh, things of Dragon Ball Z is this thing called fusion. Where two different fighters can like touch fingers and they get combined into one. And in probably the thing that made me the angriest about this bummer was that Elon Musk tweeted a picture of fusion with one side Twitter with... Elon's face and the other side parlor with yes, Kanye's face and good doing. Fusion. So it's like, it's not only a bummer that he's buying it. These guys are already thinking about combining it. And I'm like, oh my god. Elon's continued saber rattling about the fact that this is only the first stage in his plans to develop X, which is the first American super app. He's, so. he's going back to that name. That was Yeah, first... he keeps calling it X. Yeah. Elon doesn't think about things much more than the first draft. You know that, Gaetan. Yeah, I mean, a lot of his first drafts are successful, to be fair. But that's, that's true. Now, I don't, I don't want him to start messing into social, you know, defining social norms. and uh, Yeah. For those of you who don't know what a super app is, it's primarily just WeChat in China is a super app, and nobody else has quite hacked it in the same way. At a minimum, it's a way of getting around the whole app store debate that we've had hundreds of conversations about on this show. If you can create just a software layer within any ecosystem that is independent of the the hardware platform, you can create a software platform that connects everyone and has everything. And so WeChat in China is messaging, shopping, news. An app store within it. Everything you use your phone for is in one app. What's your take on, on the whole super app? Uh, well, I talked last week that one of my favorite super apps is the Disney app for Disney Oh, yes. <laughs> that, that is actually, maybe they beat Elon to the, the punch here, but yes. No, yeah, there's truly nothing like it. In Latin America, uh, Rappi. Rappi, it's kind of a... It's not really a super app because it's still very much in a niche of the jobs to be done that it does. It started as a delivery, like restaurant delivery, but it expanded very quickly through 
groceries and pharmacies, and then it expanded into you could get cash. Like you could literally ask for cash and somebody would charge your credit card and bring you cash. It evolved to thing <laughs> called like Rappi Favors, which was like a similar to like TaskRabbit, where you could just ask someone to do something mm-hmm. unstructured. They evolved into being like a Venmo. And now there is like a credit card and it, it keeps expanding, but it's not, to your point, the key differentiator of WeChat is that if you are a, an entrepreneur in China and you're making an app that does anything, you likely think first of being in WeChat than of being on the App Store. And yeah, that it's unrivaled anywhere else. And the thing that is different, I think, why this, I don't see that working in a, we're going to talk strategy. Wow, it's been a while. Is that China was very interesting because China is a perfect example of what people call like the leapfrog moment, you know, and people usually talk about payments and how credit cards never took off. And once they were arriving, the technology was already there to be able to manage payments via uh, QR codes, right? You didn't need any infrastructure. Nobody needed a car. People already had phones. And when WeChat was coming, it was one of the first apps that was available in China, in this country that had like a very limited set of apps that could be available. Um, you know, the Play Store is to this day banned. Android doesn't operate as it, as it exists. And WeChat kind of played this very critical role of like it was the one app that people had. And then because they were already there, it was like easy to expand. In a similar way that Apple did it with their App Store. I think especially in the US where there is so much the 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 phone and the app store gives us such an easy and non-friction way switching between experiences and the jobs to be done that we have that what should win and what most of the time wins is whoever does it best. Like we have no friction yeah. of just opening and going and signing it somewhere else. Like it's really, really a swipe of a finger. And the market is developed to a point that if he wants to do something else, like, why would a Benmo say, yeah, I'm going to go with you? Or an Uber say, I'm going to be within you? And it might just be him saying, I'm going to start all of these services from scratch. Which also sounds like incredibly painful and inorganic. But hey, He invented PayPal, right? That's, that's I mean, the narrative. This isn't technically, he was in X, no? He was acquired by PayPal and then he was part of PayPal. But anyway. Uh, he invented PayPal. I, 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 don't, I don't know what you're saying. He invented it. Okay, PayPal. sorry. Yeah, yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is one where uh, it's, it's the same reason why it's we have a duopoly for the app stores. Yeah, and uh, it just let's just think about it that way. Like, if there was to be another app store, well, the developers need to have an investment high enough. There are there are developers that don't even invest the same in Android. Hell, Snapchat. I don't know if they've done it anymore, but up to. Like, two years ago, if you took a picture with Snapchat, it didn't actually connect to the camera and took a picture. It took a screenshot because they, they didn't have the width and the availability to code different for each phone. So this is just an example where I, I feel like he's just saying he's his brand of marketing and he wants to say, I want to do different things. But, yeah, when compared to WeChat or something like that, I, I don't see it. I, I was, while you were talking... <laughs> you uh, fell asleep. Hopefully not. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay. I was trying to Google over here to answer my own question about something, which is something I want to bring to the fold here. Could not find the answer here. But something we've talked about at length of the show is that Apple takes a cut for a lot of digital purchases. 
on iOS. Mm -hmm. iOS is a platform that is available in China. Apple does quite well in China, not as well as other places. So I could not find actually how much money Apple takes from WeChat in terms of stuff that's sold as digital transactions through WeChat. I'm guessing it's not much. I'm guessing it's kind of a hand wave since it's such a dominant platform that they want to play ball. And the this speaks to something else, which is WeChat, like many dominant Chinese businesses, is an arm of the state functionally. The news in WeChat comes from the state. The banking system is approved by the state, and we can look at Jack Ma and Alibaba and and how they're doing right now as indication as to what happens if you get in the way of, of the state's wishes. So so to me, it's, it's interesting that it, this Epic v. Apple case and, and profit sharing and, and everything that we talk about in terms of iOS and Google as platforms and this duopoly that you reference is so important to how we think about the future of transactions on mobile platforms here. But there... Yeah, there's the super app that circumvents everything. And to me, I don't see a world in which Elon Musk is able to muster enough political power that Apple's going to say, eh, no, we're not, we're not going to mess with you. Or the U.S. government's going to say, yeah, we're going to put all of our, our trust into Elon Musk's system. Though I guess they are doing that partially with SpaceX, but <laughs> there's a lot more rigorous testing and <laughs> protocols that have to be passed to do that. Yeah. No, yeah, but that's a, that's a good example. I have... I would have to, yeah, I agree with you. It's probably, uh, first of all, it's probably something that not a lot of people probably know. No. And I don't know, I don't think it's going to be widely reported. And to your point, not. I don't know, I don't even know if it's going to be part of a, an agreement that uh, that um, Apple has with Tencent. Or, is, is WeChat Tencent? Yeah. Okay, good. I was like, oh my God, brain fart, we were there. Um if they if they signed it with Tencent or if this was kind of a when Apple deals with the Chinese government and they go through the long list of agreements mm-hmm. and how they're gonna do things, this is just one of them. I think an, another layer to this, literally another layer, is it's a much different world. But we already tried this whole web app thing in two thousand and seven when the iPhone first launched. And before that, that was kind of the dominant state of mobile applications was, ah, you can just write a web app and you don't have to deal with a native app. But that's never quite worked. That even today, as people try to circumvent their Apple's restrictions on their streaming platforms and gaming platforms, still doesn't quite work. And Apple and Google have successfully trained people to want native apps that are good for usability. The, the Chinese... The Chinese market for apps is, I think, a lot friendlier to bad UX, just based off of my white American guy trying to use (laughs) things in China. Everything is, I mean, just based on having a character-based language, it's a lot harder to create a a UX that is this beautiful, small, bespoke thing that's not predominantly text. No, yeah, that's fair. I was kind of excited when it it wasn't going to happen with Twitter. We can all know one thing, though. Kanye's next album will probably be exclusively released on Parlor. Oh, that will be, <laughs> be okay. I guess I don't know. Uh, can we move on from the bomber? What a bomber! 
Maybe this was the last. Was this the last topic for today? I think so. Uh, yeah, we are ending on a bummer note. Unless you have an AUA for me. Ah, uh, yes, we we need a palate cleanser with an an ice cream of an AUA. Um, I don't know if it's an AUA, but it's just something that I wanted to talk with you because it's something that we would talk about like one one. Cool. So Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, and I call it that because that's apparently the official name. Yeah, that's also been the uh, dominant AUA topic for the last. Exactly. No, no, but the that's that's a good one. <laughs> It was, it was, it was, uh, the first reviews are coming in. It premiered in the London, I think London Peace Festival is playing next week in LA in the Animation is Film Festival. And, uh, yeah, Netflix announced, following up on our Knives Out Glass Onion thing from last week, that it's going to play somewhere for some amount of time, <laughs> that it's unclear. And I've been really trying to get tickets to Boston. And it's crazy to me how opaque this system is. Because I understand that it's going to be in New York and in LA. Yep. Like, there should be a way of knowing that it's going to be here. You know, I remember that time where you, I wanted to go to the movies when I was a kid. And I would open the newspaper. And it would be all of the movies at what time they were playing in each movie theater in Mexico City. Like... I want like that. Give me a national register of where things are happening. Because there are movies that I would be willing to go places for. And, you know, I was hoping Fandango or Atom Tickets or some of these things had it. Maybe it's just a little bit far, but I just want... This is not an AUA. This is a therapy session for Itan, I guess. <laughs> well, I will still give you a, a response here, which is, unfortunately, Fandango is the closest thing to that i knew it uh i was just i had no idea who even owns fandango at this point it is actually jv between nbc universal 75 percent, and warner brothers discovery 25 percent. so at least they have major studio buy-in and lock-in at this point uh honestly i thought walmart owned it because of the voodoo thing but voodoo was sold by walmart i don't know you're totally right that there's not a good common ecosystem for this uh, when I lived in LA, I there was somebody who kept a rigorous calendar of rep screenings, and that was wonderful. And but it was a very manual thing. It's impossible to figure out until basically the Wednesday of a release for most things when things are coming out. It's a disaster. I agree. That's uh, so the AUA is yes, I agree with you. <laughs> no, perfect. That's good. But well, actually, I have something to note on the bomber. Something that is going to make you happy. Cool. In the last year, you know, I've been doing a pass through the non-current TV shows, like best of all time TV shows that I've never watched and binging mm -hmm. them. I did Sopranos. I did West Wing. And I wanted to share with you that I started Mad Men uh -huh. this past week. Beautiful. For a second, I was like, oh, is this only going to be playing on AMC Plus? But it's playing on the newly rebranded Freebie. Oh, the Amazon? Yeah. So you're watching with ads? Yes, I'm watching with ads. It's the rebranded IMDb TV. Yep. It works pretty well. It's less ads than Hulu. Uh, it's less intrusive. You know how Hulu, how it's almost like yeah. it loads. I think these ads load since you start screening it and it's a little more natural. It doesn't. It never cool. kind of gets stuck on black. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to let you know. I know you're very fond of the Mad Men. I am. Well, I will just say that unless you make it through at least five seasons, I will not respect your opinion on the show. 
okay, sounds good. <laughs> cool. I'm six episodes in. Well, you and most of America. <laughs> That's good. I'll, I'll, I'll catch you up on my Don Draper adventures. Cool. I am not watching much TV right now. We're, we're keeping up with The Patient, the Steve Carell, Domino Gleason show. Mm. Are you familiar with this? Yeah, I've seen the trailer. It's good. Interested to see how the plane lands. Not as exciting as we thought it would be, but kind of more interesting for that reason. So, okay. TBD. But we are uh, deep in horror movie season right now. So I know. Takes priority. I don't need to hear about that. <laughs> but and it doesn't help that there's all these award nominees or pre- presumptive award nominees like Tar and Triangle of Sadness that are three hours each that we had to go see. So Exactly. Yeah. Woe is us. Yeah, exactly. Our problems. Um, Well, it's an, an honor as always. This is our 99th episode, my friend. I'll I'll talk I to know. you. I'll talk to you next week for our 100th episode. We're, I'm going to pretend to hype up the 100th because we definitely know what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we just don't do a 100th. Maybe we just skip to 101 so that the pressure is off. See who notices. Yeah. <laughs> I have, now we'll, we'll figure out something. But until next week, thank you guys for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. And catch you later. Bye, everyone. <laughs>